Expectations. You're listening to the Into the North podcast, where we take a look at the competitive side of the Commander format, also known as CDH. I am Reed, aka Sick Robot, and today I'm joined by uh, my co-host Morgan, aka Spleenface. How's it going, everyone? Uh, and in this episode, we are going to be covering uh, practice games. Um, how you go about putting them together, what you get out of them, how to make the best out of uh, practice games, etc. And this is for you know. Either getting practice in with a new deck, or specifically preparing for a tournament, or an event of some sort, or just uh, trying to get somebody else uh, going with their brewing process or something like that. Um, all of the above, we'll, we'll try to talk about some uh, some general standards and uh, good ideas and best practices behind uh, doing all that stuff. Um, but aside from that, before we get into the main topic, uh, Morgan, anything interesting recently? <laughs> uh, not especially, I've mostly just been pretty busy with work and haven't had too much yeah. time to to get into crazy stuff but yep that's that sounds like a common through line for the entire podcast right now yeah <laughs> it's a busy season or at least a busy month um we are going to be do it's not something that we've done yet but we are going to be doing a uh our first 2v2 back in a while which is gonna be fun um yeah, for sure coming coming back to the city of toronto 2v2 uh great format if uh you haven't heard uh about the format we've actually done a podcast on it uh the 2v2 i forget what number it was but you can probably go through our backlog and find it, it. from um, february 2022 i know that much yeah sure um anyway great format if you uh want to try it out if you're looking for something new for a uh, local lgs or local play group to um try out would highly recommend it's a ton of fun absolute blast um effectively you just play uh it's it's almost like two out of giant um cdh except you're playing not two out of giant it's more like a four player game but you're you know you play like diagonally across from each other and play take individual turns um and, and good avoid, time yeah some of the the most silly and broken aspects of two out of giant of yeah two out of giant um it's uh it's it's almost just like playing CDH, except you actually get to play hand attack spells and like strip mine. <laughs> uh, that's basically it, right? Yeah, pretty much. If you, uh, want, if you ever wanted to play Canadian Highlander, but with a commander, <laughs> yeah, just how many how many different ways can you sell two v two to the general CDH audience? <laughs> We actually we like I it's not unreasonable that we may run like another event. We have we have run an online two v two tournament at one point, but uh you know might do it again, might not. But uh let us know if you're if uh, anybody's interested as well, because I'm I think we'd be happy to run like a one day event or something for it. Yeah, for sure. Um, and that's all just to uh of course antagonize Keegan and Zach if they're listening because they know. <laughs> and uh, also that. Actually, I don't know how many of those people still listen, but I remember when we used to go to those events regularly, we'd get a few people always complaining about how the section of us talking about what happened at the most recent 2v2 took like five minutes at the start of the episode. <laughs> yeah, Sh- true, shout out to those people. I remember I remember Redshift. I don't remember who else complained, but We're, uh, there's yeah. some real OGs in that crowd. Get, getting back to the same bit like two years later it's great <laughs> three years later i don't want to think about it three years um, three more yeah. than three years yeah anyway hopping into housekeeping real quick uh we have two new patrons that we'd like to thank uh first of all thank you to benjamin h and thank you to shane v uh y'all rock 
thanks for supporting the podcast much appreciated uh we, we'll talk more about patreon at the end of the episode but um it's probably in the description if you want to go uh help us out if you want to go support the pod um in terms of new developments uh we have uh, i guess a couple of things actually we didn't note all of them down but we'll talk through a few of them uh by the time this comes out it may or may not be the same weekend as uh the r slash cdh's uh colorful duality or duality 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 i think it's like dual duality there, it, it's it. some pun that like works in text but doesn't really work uh anywhere else um yeah some some sort of uh some sort of yeah just pun that doesn't actually work but anyway um <laughs> uh so that's going to be uh the uh r slash cdh's discord being run on uh the 22nd of july 2023 um so go reg if we get this out before then otherwise it, it might still be running so go check it out or you can go check out the vods or whatever um it's a part of the r slash cdh's brewers series so distinct from the path of dominance series um this one i think is you're only allowed to play uh the two color commanders and lower in terms of color identity which is a fun one it's definitely i'm a fan of the yeah uh, it's definitely interesting i think it like uh you know there's a bunch of interesting stuff that is just kind of overshadowed by having a lot of really good cards in a deck together yeah yeah yeah. um it is going to be interesting having a because I feel like a lot of it is like there's going to be the uh the decks that aren't on Grafdigger's Cage, which is effectively just Winota and Kitten, and then all of the other decks which are going to be on Grafdigger's Cage and seeing how those work. Um because I I would imagine Winota and Kitten are gonna be like the mostly the top two picks for the uh for the format. But it it's interesting to have like those to build around, but you don't really have to worry about just like dying hyper consistently on like turn two turn three to like fast stuff in four and five colors yeah um, i mean there's definitely gonna be some or getting some, out value some zoom oh, there, be, stuff there will 100 percent be like people playing rakdos things um but you know it's it's interesting that like there's gonna be trade-offs like actual trade-offs instead of just all good stuff yuriko is also uh an interesting mm, great one uh, an interesting pick i think like i think it's of the best two color decks i think it's the one that like doesn't like i think winota in particular loses a lot when it's not like like it's built to prey on a very specific type of gameplay pattern that you see in a lot of four color decks and i think it struggles a little bit when people are doing a wider array array of stuff that you have to stop and and also what it's very obviously like the Apex Predator, right? Yeah. Like Winota gets a lot of mileage out of like not being the best deck in the format. Um <laughs> and then as soon as you limit everything to two color, it is now like pretty obviously the best deck in the format, which makes like the counterplay a lot more obvious. Yeah, you'll have a much harder time convincing people to save their removal or or save their <laughs> <Yeah>. counter spells. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Don't counter Winota because uh Rog is gonna go off. Yeah, well, you know, when we've got like a bunch of janky two color decks. Probably have a couple turns. <laughs> or maybe just the other half of the field does just bring Rock to Vash and it just it plays the exact same way. <laughs> Possible. Um, yeah, anyway. Go check that out. Um, aside from that, there are uh, some other tournaments that we should probably be talking about um, that we're going to, but I'm forgetting a couple of them. Um, 
So there's one again in Kingston, Ontario, on the sometime. I do you have the date? It's it's late August. Oh no, late uh, August. Um, I'm not even sure that we have ads for it anyway. But yeah, um, if anybody's in the area of on of uh just Ontario in general, specifically Kingston, um, we will probably be making the uh the trek out there to go play in that. So uh, we'll drop information for that at least in the Discord when we have it. Um, potentially go back and put it in the uh. August twenty sixth. Episode August twenty sixth. There you go. Um, and then I, I there are like two others that we might be doing sooner, and I cannot remember either of them. So, um, Morgan, do you got them? No, sorry, I I don't know what you're referring to. <laughs> is there is there a Bufftown Bullies one happening? Yeah, I soon-ish? I thought we. I th- I don't think I can make it, so I don't I don't know what's going on with you guys. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, that might be it. Uh, anyway, there's something happening down there. Well, we should probably just like reshoot this entire segment, but that's fine. <laughs> well, you know what? We're, I'm just gonna skip talking about any of those things, and you can go look in the description for the episode for all the links for the things that we are probably gonna advertise. <laughs> um, but well, aside from that. Yeah, you know, we're we're definitely prepared for all this at a time. This is what it looks like when we don't spend time doing our new developments in the show notes and instead just trying to wing it. Peek behind the scenes. Um, yeah, anyway, so we're going to get into the uh, main topic now, which is going to be a fun one, uh, which is, yeah, uh, practice games. Um, how do you get them? What to do with them? How to get the most out of them? Um, why you might want to set up consistent practice games or whatever? Um, all that kind of stuff. Because uh, I think... We're getting to the point in the podcast now where when we talk about stuff like this, or at least, like, things in relation to, like, you know, brewing or playing in tournaments or getting better at the game, getting better at the format, there's a lot of crossover with previous episodes, so we probably talked about, like, some of these concepts before, uh, but this is sort of just, like, a centralized uh, sort of discussion platform for the stuff to, yeah, you know, talk about, like, a bunch of the stuff that we think is important about, um getting in practice games um so the first thing first things first uh how do you set up practice games morgan how do you set up practice games uh i just uh ping in my friend group server and then we have practice games um yeah there you go (laughs) i think i think one of the like you know we'll talk about all the stuff that's like nice to have in your practice games like practicing against certain decks or whatever but i think like what will actually go a long way is if you, when you're setting up just, like, a game, just let the people in the game know that, like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I've got this tournament coming up, so I'm, like, trying to, I'm trying to practice, so, you know, basically just, like, if people could, you know, take it, you know, take it seriously, do their best, you know, like, that actually does help a decent amount, like, even if people aren't, you know, really going out of their way to, like, play super tight and consider all the lines, just, like, a little sort of uh, acknowledgement, and even if it's largely subconscious of, like, okay, I'm gonna, you know, take this seriously, will, I think, increase the quality of your games pretty drastically versus... Yeah, definitely. I mean, some playgroups are just like that, naturally. But, like, certainly some playgroups, people do, you know, silly things. They keep sketchy hands. They, you know, whatever. Um, so just, like, 
letting people know that you're looking for practice can often eliminate a lot of that. Yeah, setting the tone really for just like the the game that you're about to play. Um, and yeah, like I think it's definitely um, it's definitely a good idea to even if you like let that be known to the rest of the table. And even if, like, the other people aren't playing particularly tight because they're just like, well, I was just looking for, like, casual games, so, like, I, you can practice, but I'm just going to, like, play how I usually play. Um, just, like, getting yourself in your own mindset about, like, okay, I'm doing this to, I'm playing this game to improve, so, like, even if there are other people are, like, making suboptimal plays or just, like, you know, having fun, playing loosely, whatever, um, I'm going to be thinking about a lot of the stuff that I need to be thinking about in terms of, like, the deck slots that I've been um looking at the like play patterns that i've sort of been trying to figure out with this deck like what what does it do well into what does it not do super well into and just sort of like making those observations and making sure that you're locking in that you're making those observations rather than just sort of just you know playing playing some games on autopilot yeah it's definitely you know your opponents having the right mindset is important but a lot of it is is just how you're approaching the game as well yeah definitely um but yeah so in terms of actually putting together maybe like a practice group or just like a, a sequence of practice games or whatever um the big things are i mean sort of obviously um if you just like <laughs> listen to this as uh the big two things are going to be the decks that people are playing and then the people that are playing those decks wow shocker right that's crazy that 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 would be the primary two things that you have to care about when putting together practice games but you know it's it's always a good one just just state the obvious and then work into it a bit um but the in general so like say if you're doing practice games with no real goal aside from just like evaluating a deck that you're playing or like a new crew or something that you're picking up um it's a good idea to try to get a diverse range of decks. Uh, you don't want to be playing like a three-way Goto mirror plus whatever brew you're playing. Uh, probably not a good idea. Probably not going to get you great testing results or like just in general good feedback. Um, so just trying to get like a diverse set of decks. Um, it's I think a lot of people focus a bit too much on trying to get like perfect pod compositions. And there there is like time and space for like getting specific pod compositions and running those for like a 20x 30x games and just seeing how it turns out um but a lot of the time you can get a lot of results and a lot of good um just good takeaways from just playing against a diverse range of decks and playing against like maybe just like two people in the pod swap decks every game and you just get like a variety of different pod compositions with different people sitting in different seats um you're, you're gonna get a lot of that a lot out of that even if it's not like you're not like testing in the specific meta that you want to be testing for um and then in terms of uh pilots definitely uh th this one's sort of tougher in general i mean it's um I think we've had, uh, I, I feel like I've had this conversation with somebody. I feel like you were there, Morgan, about, like, how do you assemble good practice groups? Uh, and the, sort of the concept is really just being, like, uh, like, just making, like, active connections with people that you think would be, like, good practice to play against that you think are, like, playing tight or also have, like, a similar improvement mindset. And then just trying to, like, assemble a group of at least, like, four people to, like, make a pod or whatever, or potentially more, 
and then just like jam games with that group consistently and like just try to make sure that like everybody's trying to get better or like everybody's on like a good level and playing that way um which can be like it might sound like a lot of work but you can like you could you could probably get like at least like a consistent pod that you could play like weekly with like the same people together and if you if you all have an improvement mindset it's like relatively easy to actually put that together and the quality of games over just playing uh in like just posting like random lfgs and like large-ish gameplay servers is like it, it's exponentially better um for improvement and for like getting like good takeaways for testing games and practice games and honestly even if the like another thing that is sort of uh important on that front is even if like you know in in a holistic sense the games aren't like better like the people you're playing with aren't you know particularly skilled or whatever just having some level of consistency and continuity uh means that whatever information you get from uh from your games is just gonna be a lot more useful right if you like make a change and then you see oh you know i've started doing this uh you know taking this action more or playing this way or trying to do this or that and then like you compare your success you know you can maybe draw at least some tentative conclusions or like you can you know you can analyze your results whereas if it's like okay well against these opponents on these decks uh, you know i wasn't doing x and then i played a completely different set of opponents on a completely different set of decks and i started doing x you know like are are those results meaningful uh yeah do they, are they like... based on the decks or are they based on like the people that you're playing against and it just so happened that like one pod was way more likely to feed a rhystic study than the other pod or whatever right yeah so so just having something consistent and also like essentially it's probably easier to find a play group and then try and turn them into a practice group than like completely yes. organically build build a a practice group from you know from sort of from scratch like if you just you know to to add on what Reed was saying like just find people who you think would be good to play with and then play with them and then when you're looking for practice games all of a sudden you'll have connections with people who you think would make good practice partners yeah like really from my end the stress here is that like you want to play with people who want to improve and it shouldn't really matter the objective skill level of anybody involved obviously like if you're like looking to get like really good and you're like looking to improve really quickly and it's it would obviously be like really beneficial to play with like three like really good players who are going to like pick apart your game and like whenever you make make it obvious whenever you make a mistake not like in a toxic way but just being like oh that was that was probably like suboptimal you probably should have done this sequencing instead or like oh maybe like this game this like game plan might have been better like obviously playing with three people who can like point out every single one of those things that you're doing wrong every game is going to be a lot better than like if you can't but it's yeah it really it's just more about the mindset in general of people wanting to play productive games and wanting to get better and wanting to notice these things rather than people who like just want to play games with fun and obviously fine to want to play cdh for fun um but that's not what Ew, practice games are for right <laughs> i hate fun 
Uh, so yeah, that's I I would say that's like a majority of the um of the getting a group together in the first place. Um, and then even for you know, uh, for like getting individual games once you already have like a group together, um, it's sort of going to be like a similar thing of just like even just like I mean setting ground rules ahead of time and sort of uh figuring out like if you want to play against specific decks or if you like have a like specific requests from people and just like talking it out ahead of time is also a a huge one even like once you get a group together just for every game um obviously if you just have like a running through line of like this is what we're playing games for so we don't have to talk about it every game that's fine but um you know i would say just make sure that you get a ground rules slash expectations slash goals set at some point (laughs) before playing games right yeah Uh, yeah, and then before games as well, uh, one of the things that I put down here was, um, figuring out, once you have a group together and, like, you know, you've laid down ground rules and, you know, that you're, like, when you're pointing out mistakes, you're not being toxic, you're just, like, trying to improve, you're trying to bring stuff to people's attention and stuff like that. Um, uh, before games, figuring out if you actually are testing for, like, a specific meta or like a specific pod composition or like specific um versus specific strategies um in general um just checking that out with the rest of the people that you're going to play against and being like hey does anybody like have one of x decks together or like hey is it possible to get a pod that looks like x just so i can test this deck um because it's i think you'd be surprised at the Maybe not the ease, but, like, the frequency at which you would be able to put together specific pod compositions if that's, like, actually what you needed to play against. Obviously, if you have, like, only, like, a, you know, like, a four-person testing team and that's all you're doing and everybody pl- plays, like, exactly their main deck, it might be a bit of an issue. Um, Wait, but Lyndon's not have... here. We can also say, hey, <laughs> just play on Trace so then you can switch decks more easily and get the pods yeah. you want. Yeah, that. <laughs> Do play on Trace, dude. If you're doing testing games, honestly, playing paper testing games just sort of sucks. Um, Trice is by far the superior platform for testing games, but if you can't, um, just just try to have like two or three decks together for this kind of thing. Um, if, especially if you're if you're not doing active testing, but somebody in your playgroup is um, having a couple of decks or like three decks together with like varying strategies and like all being like relatively strong. Like maybe you have like one or two brews, sure, but like having like uh traditional like good meta deck together um there are a couple in a variety of strategies is going to be like really useful for this kind of thing where it's like i need to i need to test against a really fast pod i need to test against a bunch of like mid-rangey blue decks i need to test against um a bit of stacks but also like a, a mixed pot like i i, I want to see what it looks like when i'm playing against like two stacks decks and a fast deck or whatever um it's really really nice to have those options uh when you're doing practice games as well oh one of and the, then going even one of the yeah, we forgot to yeah, mention for finding your games is uh if if you don't have a play group you know uh or like it it's not particularly feasible especially for online tournaments often whatever servers hosting the tournament will have some way to connect with other players who are looking for practice and then that shortcuts a lot like if you find other players who are looking for tournament practice then you know you know that they're intending to take it seriously and they're probably going to be playing their best deck and all of that um so if you're practicing for an online tournament, just check out the server. Maybe ask around. You can probably find some practice partners there. Yeah. 
great great recommendation as well um and then yeah i was just gonna say like you can even take the pod composition thing even deeper and this one is sort of maybe well i guess maybe not deeper but it's like a sort of uh adjacent to it um of potentially also looking at uh playing against like specific scenarios or game states um and then like engineering opening hands to achieve that um i'm not sure that we do this a bunch but um in general like if you're if you're like concerned about like how a deck is going to play versus specific permanents or specific things being in people's hands over the course of a game um there's nothing in the rules of CDH in general, I guess, saying that you can't just, like, put together a pot of four people and be like, okay, um, person in first, can you just start with, like, an Esper Sentinel in your hand plus, like, six cards for your mulligans, and then you just, like, will consistently have the turn one Esper Sentinel so I can, like, play against that and, like, see what it's like and see what the deck feels like under that scenario. Or, like, this, whoever in the pod has, like, a Grafdigger's Cage will just, like, put a Grafdigger's Cage in your opening hand and, like, I'll, I'll see how my deck functions versus that or whatever. Like, that kind of thing, right? Um... I think it's like, you, yeah. I you certainly people, can do yeah. that. I, I, I'm not, sorry. I'm not saying that you should. I'm just. I, I wanted to put this as a note here, just because I think, I, I think messing with the actual like game itself is not something that crosses people people's mind, especially when like testing for a tournament or an event or like testing like a serious deck. Um, obviously, it's not always going to be super useful, and you have to like have some caveats on your results when you do that. But I do think it's like something just to be aware of. Like you can do this. Like it's it's there's there's nothing in the CDH community rulebook saying that like you can't engineer specific scenarios to play against. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but yeah, I guess like like if if you have something that you think might be useful, or like you want to test something specific, you know, you can always ask the people you're playing with how they feel about it. And you know what, yeah. they might they might say, you know, no, I'd rather just play a, a normal game, but you know, there's there's I think with a lot of this stuff, there's really no harm in asking. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I, I mean, a lot of practice games in general are like just communication and especially like around the discussion, you just want to make sure that like nobody is taking it the wrong way or that like everybody's being like respectful about because you know you, you get into a lot of discussions about like oh you made a suboptimal play or like oh i'm not sure that card's good here or, like x or whatever but like you know you want to all get on the same page that you're here for improvement or you're here to like do analysis of a bunch of different stuff so um yeah communication turns out really big thing and also i feel like cdh nerds have to hear that a bunch because turns out the average <laughs> the the average person that plays cdh probably not super socially aware just in general True. so yeah actually communication is just super important something to work on also yep. good for practice <laughs> <Just> games <laughs> yep <laughs> all right cool um I, I think that's like most of what we had for the primary stuff for like getting games set up and sort of like pre-game um stuff and that um and we can move on to our second subtopic here which is uh what to track and why um morgan i had a couple of things written down but uh i know you wrote this down so you probably have stuff on your mind that you wanted to talk about here well so i i sort of wanted this to be open-ended because I, I think i originally oh sure wrote it did i write what to track and why uh i think i wrote it slightly differently 
because like i think a lot of people uh track i i think it's possible for tracking to actually be uh not super helpful or to create mm. uh impressions that aren't necessarily super useful um one word i've sort of been trying to avoid using throughout this discussion is data because the reality yeah. <laughs> is if we're talking about like hey i have a tournament coming up in you know some relatively short time frame six weeks what you're gathering isn't data in a, in a meaningful sense where you can you know perform statistical analysis to draw conclusions unless you are like a fiend and you're dedicating a you're just playing like eight hours of cdh yeah. a, a day and like um, yeah so like i think often people will track things and they'll look at like their 10 game moving average of win rate or something like that and and sort of draw conclusions uh from that that i think are you know sometimes detrimental because they just create strong impressions where really there's either pure chance or like uh you know a primarily chance with a, a small amount of of signal but but mostly noise um and so i think that uh you know tracking can be somewhat detrimental in that way that being said obviously um having even just like a few notes or some observations written down can be extremely useful um even just so that you don't forget what happened you know if you want to go back and think about you know ways you want to try and improve or ideas you might have just having things written down means you don't have to rely on what is i'm I'm going to just assume your imperfect mel memory like probably <laughs> yeah. don't have a, a photographic memory i mean if, if any of our listeners have photographic memory let us know because that is really cool but i'm assuming you don't <laughs> if you're listening to this yeah so like just having it you know be having having notes or having some information recorded does streamline that process but i would caution yeah i guess i would say notes are fine or even like a record is fine but if you mm -hmm. start treating your sample size of you know a few dozen games at most as data from which you draw what you're calling you know statistical conclusions um i think you've you're probably going to you're gonna that's gonna lead you astray yeah. a, mo a lot more than than it's then you're actually gonna draw yeah. meaningful conclusions from it yeah. um i mean this is this is basically just an extension of the overall cdh thing which is that like you, you don't have enough data you think you have enough data you don't have enough data don't take like don't put stock into it <laughs> um but yeah just realistically be careful about what you're tracking, and uh, it should more be to um, either in very limited senses or just um, for your own reference and not really to draw direct conclusions from. Um, that being said, there are a couple. Uh, there are a couple of things that I'd written down for specifically like things that if you want to uh, 
track if you do need to track stuff or want to track things i think there are a couple of things that are worth tracking um depending on like what you're looking to get out of practice games um big one for me is this isn't data but it's just sort of making a mental note or again like morgan said writing it down just having a notebook um of keeping track of uh potential card choices or effects that are not currently in your deck but that you wish you had access to um a lot of the time this is great for like the initial stages of a brew or if you're testing like an unfamiliar meta game um playing in a game if you fire off a tutor uh being like hmm i really wish i had this thing to go get right now and it's not in the deck so like maybe maybe i should like write that one down and consider like putting it in the sideboard or the maybe board and think about if i need to uh slotted in to the deck for uh this specific uh situation um and then like as an extension of that like determining if you actually need to find space for that effect or if you can like work around it with the rest of the deck or uh if there are like some other play patterns that you could have taken that didn't that meant that you like didn't necessarily need to have an additional card for it you could have just uh worked through it with your existing deck um so you know just stuff like Hey, I fired off this Whirly Tutor. I really wish that there was a Skyclave operation in the deck or just, like, some way to, like, some creature that could blow up artifacts and enchantments or, like, permanents in the in the deck. Um, that kind of stuff. Or, like, you know, I need, oh, maybe I should have a mass removal piece in this deck that isn't a Psych Rift. Like, maybe I need to be able to remove a bunch of creatures, so I'll slot in, like, a Toxic Deluge or a Fire Covenant or something like that. Um, and then testing with those. Uh, and then second, for me at least, is... Uh, uh definitely a b testing um this one is a bit more data like it's sort of creeping more into that area but it's really just sort of um this is something that i would recommend like writing down and then like keeping context for so that you can come back and like not just look at numbers and you can sort of like remember the situations for things um so like a b testing would be like you have a card in your deck that you're considering a relatively even swap for, so like a, a very similar effect that just has like similar upsides or downsides. Um, and then just keeping track of in a game when you have it in your hand or when you have access to it, uh, which one would have been better in that situation. So say you have a deck where you're considering uh, a soul partition or a snap in the main board, and like you're playing soul partition right now, I'm just keeping track of like, oh, I'm firing off a tutor. Well, if I found soul partition here, it wouldn't do anything. Would Snap have done anything if I had found Snap instead? Oh, I'm casting a Soul Partition here and it didn't feel that great. Would Snap have felt better here? Um, that kind of thing. Same thing, you know, like, offer you can't refuse and dispel, that kind of thing. Um, just keeping track of A-B testing. I'm still a huge proponent of A-B testing, even though I don't actually practice it, but I think it's still very useful for uh, uh, sort of the refinement stage of brewing as well as um, testing for, uh, like, getting your exact 99 nailed down for a tournament list. Um, like when you're in the last five slots or so being like okay like i many a time me and morgan have been playing testing games with like okay fimage was good here or like we're playing a priest of titania in this slot um if it was a phantasmal image would it have been like particularly better here or would i prefer to have the priest yeah and i think i think again that's like a much more realistic approach than say trying to play a number of games with card A and play a number of games with yeah. card B. Like, you're just, you know, even if you're tutoring for it relatively aggressively or, like, you know, it's a common tutor target, you're still going to be looking at, like, generously a 50% rate where you see it. And then if the difference 
if the st statistical difference in effectiveness is like 10% between the two cards to get any sort of meaningful number you're looking at like yeah 30 plus games with each card and like you, that's just yeah. not not realistic whereas you can definitely get more of a sense in a smaller number of games if you just consider first of all you consider every time so it's not just did i win or lose this game it's which one would have been better like you can consider it every time you cast a tutor right like if yeah. i had x in my deck would i be getting it now would it be good um so you get more data points per game plus you don't have games where you get no data plus your data is well it's less objective in that it's not did i win or did i lose it's uh you know it's a much stronger signal because whether or not you win or lose is an indicator of whether a card was good or bad in a given situation but it's not a one-to-one -one correlation yeah absolutely um i guess the the other one would just be like the inverse of like things that you wish you had access to which is um like just keeping track of like cards that you're just like never tutoring over a diverse set of games um or like things that you just like never found a use for um always a nice thing yeah. to just like keep track of in the back of your head or keep track of on or that are getting paper, stuck like, in your hand yeah just like things that you realize that you're never casting um it's like oh i have this like i have this my in the deck and i'm just like never casting this my or i'm just like never tutoring this my over like the grand abolisher that i also have so like maybe Maybe that should make its way out, or like you know, I oh my man, like this mnemonic betrayal is like really bad in this specific meta. Like I'm just like never tutoring for it. Maybe I should have it out for here, um, even though it's like great in these other metas that I've been playing in. Um, yeah, so it's just like that kind of stuff. You have any other ones? I feel like these are like sort of the main ones that I keep track of. But I mean, definitely, uh, like just broadly, any uh, like mid range engine that isn't one of mm. the very best ones is one I'm always like, right. okay, I'm going to be paying attention to, is this getting stuck in my hand all the time? Or like synergy pieces with your commander, um, yeah, that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah. Like the things that are strong and on the expensive side, but not necessarily like instantly game winning are ones that I'm generally going to focus on a little bit more because like there is a very clear threshold of or not a clear threshold but like there's there obviously is a threshold of hey too much clunk in this deck is is gonna get in the way so you want to yeah. be uh you know you want to be playing those powerful synergy pieces and like you do need at least in most decks something that generates you value over time and can allow you to play a longer game but it's definitely easy to overload a deck with that and start trimming your interaction or your win cons or whatever um and wind up hurting more than you're helping definitely the combination of diminishing returns and opportunity cost is uh you know creates uh there's always a threshold <laughs> you can always yeah. add yep. too much good stuff is bad stuff i don't know what you're talking about i feel like never mind i was about to make a, a joke that i feel like i've I feel like it's because I pulled it from my unconscious. We've already had this exact discussion on the podcast, which is the deck full of ancestral recalls and black lotuses. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so sort of like dovetailing into that topic, um, something I, that I had here, um, in terms of sort of like 
making the best out of like the limited data that you have or like the limited time that you have for practice games because you know you're never going to get like perfect practice you never like it's very rare that you're going to get um 10 games with like all of these different pod competition compositions that you want to test into it's very rare that you're going to get the perfect pod compositions you might have to do like some substituting it's going to be like oh well i'm not <laughs> not playing against this four color deck i'm playing against like urza in that slot instead so i have to make like whatever what equivalencies i can sorry keegan <laughs> it's valuable testing just the deck is not very popular <laughs> in tournament metas. um but yeah like so just the idea of like trying to draw more out of those uh experiences than like at face value um and this is sort of like yeah again this is sort of like interlocked to the previous point as well but it's less about like interpreting the uh data involved and more just like trying to like think about if you think any of the experiences in the game that you played are analogous to something that you might see um in like other games more serious games tournament games etc um just as a way of like again getting more out of like any random game that you might be playing um so the idea for this one would be stuff like um if you played in a game where somebody had like a resource denial stacks piece um say something like you know rule of law denying your actions like a static orb denying your mana um uh trinosphere like again locking you out of uh doing a lot of stuff except for um you know doing doing like a lot of stuff in one turn um if you like lost to like one of those stacks pieces or like you didn't lose to it but you know you played a game under one of those for like the vast majority of the game um just consider if the situation would have been like meaningfully different for you if you had been playing under like a rule of law instead or whatever and thinking about like okay like it are any of my experiences in this game in this situation analogous to what would have happened if i would have been playing in a different pod but somebody would have like resolved a similar effect um this is obviously like a weird one but i found that it like it can be useful for again like if you're just playing against like some friends like um decks that like aren't the best decks in the meta or you're just playing in like random pods on like lfg servers uh with people playing like whatever decks they want to bring uh trying to again draw the most out of those um it, it it it's something that you like might want to think about um just because there are like situations that are like weirdly analogous to other ones again like the the resource denial stack sort of thing is that like the idea is that like you know trinosphere sometimes can sort of act like a rule of law or like a rule of law and a static orb sometimes are like sort of analogous in a lot of ways um depending on like how your deck plays so just like just considering if you can if you can make those connections thoughts morgan you, you would just never do this you would never recommend that anybody try this uh no i i mean obviously <laughs> like trying to you know <laughs> i guess we could summarize a lot of this as just think about your games um <laughs> <laughs> yeah fair like i i do think probably the better takeaway but i i do think that i mean obviously thinking about your games is good and, and talking about them is good um it can be tricky like a lot of those things are not super analogous like you know yeah yeah, yeah. like okay if there's a rule of law versus if there's a static orb i'm really i'm just res i'm restricted to casting one spell a turn 
So, like, maybe that's useful information for me. But, yeah. um, it's it makes a huge difference to, I don't know, the Yisong player across the table, which right. one of those stacks yeah, pieces is in play, play right? So, yeah. so, it, it can definitely, uh, like, you have to be very careful with stuff like that, because while certain things might have a similar effect on you, or on your deck, or on your, you know, game plan, um, you do have to account for the fact that they can have hugely different effects on different decks and different game plans. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. So I, I definitely should have, I definitely should have said that, like, one of the, um, sorry, one of the things that I should have gotten out of the way before this is, like, this, is, this isn't about, like, evaluating how a game would have gone or, like, how games might go with this. It's more about, like, how does your deck operate under these conditions? Sure, yeah. And, and yeah. that, again, you can get some useful data there. Though, yeah. you know, if the Winota deck puts down a rule of law and then is, like, slamming down more stacks pieces and attacking every turn versus if the, I don't know, if some other, like, green-white stacks deck puts down a rule of law, you know. Right. It, it, it can be hard to separate how your deck functions from how, what, you know, I mean, one yeah, of the ways like your deck functions is how does it handle what your yeah. opponents are <laughs> yes. throwing against it. Fair. And fair. that stuff can change a lot depending on the context that stacks pieces are being played in. So yeah. I wouldn't, uh, you know, dr I'd be weary of drawing particularly firm conclusions uh, yes. from, from those methods. I, I will just say that it, like it's it's I found it rel productive sometimes just for getting like vague like hmm okay that's that's what like my general stacks matchup is like or like you know what what's my general like counter magic match matchup like or like my general like you know like stack interaction matchup like if I'm playing like a wide variety of card types and such and people are holding up at speed yeah I think um, I think they could sort of be interesting for yeah particularly when you're trying to extrapolate. I think you can extrapolate um you can extrapolate questions. Yes. Much more than yeah, sorry. and like yeah. that's still useful, you know. Saying like, oh, I now know how you know, I played several games against Winota, so I know how my deck handles rule of law. Or like how my deck handles stacks would be a huge overstatement. Even how my deck handles rule of laws would be an overstatement because, you know, the context of the rule of laws went against Winota yeah. is different than against other decks, etc. Um but, you know, asking asking yourself questions like, you know, do I need to be removing rule of laws quickly? Do I need, you know, a plan for this stacks piece or that stacks piece? Do, you know, is there some tool I need? Is yeah. there some way I should be playing, some strategy I should be going for when I see those coming down or a commander who's likely to have them? And then asking those questions, even if you don't necessarily answer them, um, you know, when you get into a game in a tournament, say, having that series of questions to ask yourself when something develops in front of you, you know, you can still, uh, even if you don't have like a, a list of all the perfect answers, asking the right questions and then thinking about it and extrapolating from what experience you do have um, is, you know, that's basically just how you should be translating your, your practice into, into your tournament games.
Yep. Absolutely. Uh, cool. Um, so next up here we have uh, probably should have reoriented or reordered some of these to put this at the start, but that's fine. Um, it's just some quick points about mindset going into games. Uh, we touched on this a bit just with um, you know, just so far talking about like actually like thinking about the games and like alternative things that could have happened, like prediction, confirmation, that kind of stuff. Uh, but in general, and for mindsets, um, huge one for practice games, I would say probably the most important for, like, staying in the correct mental zone for playing practice games is not, like, overvaluing winning or losing at all, and potentially, like, not really valuing the actual outcome of the game at all, and really putting, like, all the focus on just your play inside of the game. Um, huge one. Yeah, for sure. I think I think like when I'm when I'm prepping for a tournament, I'm I'd much rather play a game, you know, that I think I played really well and lose than, you know, make a bunch of mistakes and still win. Um yeah. Because yeah, I think particularly when you're trying to improve, I mean, obviously winning more is a sign that you're improving, but over, you know, a dozen games it's the the variance is so high that it's not much of a sign like if you play a dozen games yeah. you play 10 games and you win two of them and you go wow that's only a 20 percent win rate and then you play 10 more you, you make some change you play 10 more games you win three of them you went from five percent below expected to five percent above expected or another way of looking at it is that you won one more game in the second set yep. of play. <laughs> Like, that could happen a thousand different ways. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I think, yeah, on the on the subject of, you know, mistakes and playing well, identify mistakes. Identify your mistakes. Ask people if you think, you know, they, you made mistakes. Uh, if you have a play group that is amenable, talk about things you think that they, like, mistakes they might have made. Um, mm -hmm. this one's always easier when, uh, you didn't win, you know, it can come across like, <laughs> yep. like, like you're being a bit of a dick if it's like, so I won and, and here's why it's cause you're bad. Whereas it's like, you know, when, when people make things that you think are mistakes, um, you know, and then you don't win, it's very easy to be like, Hey, I'm not saying I'm better than you. I just, you know, I wonder about this or that. And, you know, you might be wrong. Maybe, you know, the cards in their hand, they go, oh, well, yeah, I see that. But, you know, I had this card, so I was trying to set up for an opportunity to do whatever. Um, or, you know, I didn't think I needed to answer that threat because I thought, you know, the game was going to end before the Rhystic Study drew too many cards, or whatever it is. Um, you know, just getting a bunch of information, getting a better sense for the way other people are seeing the game um, for, you know, it can often be useful for sort of evaluating your own reads on the game. Like uh, a big one for me is after games trying to ascertain. Cause like often I'll look at a board state and go like, I could go for a win here, but I can't protect it. And, you know, I'm just not going to try because I, there's a bunch of people with cards in hand and untapped mana, and we haven't seen a lot of interaction. 
and just asking after the game, confirming that it was there, uh, or if it wasn't trying to sort of update my mental models on what signs I'm reading and when I'm uh, interpreting or, or, you know, trying to predict what sort of interaction is out there. Um, just asking people at the end of the game, hey, was I right on this read? Uh, definitely yeah. helps improve those over time. Yeah. And also just, uh, I mean, even generalizing that, like a bunch of that stuff even more, uh, just asking questions in general in games. <laughs> yeah. um, it could be either like in the moment or afterwards and just being like, hey, like, uh, what what would you have thought of this line? Or like, oh, like, what do you think I should have done here instead if you're playing against like somebody who has like a similar ex like experience in like a similar style of deck to the one that you're playing? Um, just like asking questions to the rest of the table and gathering viewpoints on things is a pretty good idea in general. Um, just to you know get comparisons. So again, you can just like update whatever your evaluations of a bunch of things are. Um, just you know, th these are we're getting into like just general improvement goals or like improvement strategies for like anything but you know i think they're i think they are worth repeating uh and bear understanding um i also I, yeah i i think another another sort of thing to you know to add to mindset is um if you are like obviously the stuff we've been discussing isn't uh i mean obviously lines is a, a deck specific thing um but uh, a lot of it's sort of broad. If you are trying to improve sort of your mechanics, for lack of a better term, you can also, like, have your mindset be, okay, for a few games, I'm I'm going to focus on X. Like, you know, for a lot of people, I think the way you... And, you know, this is... I feel like this is my uh, my topic that I bring up all the time. But the way people play their mana and use their mana bases... Mm, yeah. It's really easy for it to just, you know, turn into autopilot and uh, then, you know, you don't get punished for it that often. But um, if you sort of decide like, okay, this game, I'm going to like really pay attention to, you know, how I'm sequencing my mana, what colors I have access to, what I'm able to hold up, what I'm not able to hold up and like consider alternate scenarios that could have happened. Um, you know, you can you can really improve your understanding there. Like I and and I make a point of doing that, like every once in a while I'll be like, okay, I really wanna like usually it'll be after I make what I consider to be a mistake in how I handled my mm -hmm. mana, I'll be like, okay, these next couple games I'm gonna like really pay attention to it and try and like reinforce the, the good habits and, and expunge the bad ones. Um yeah. Because, yeah, like, there are heuristics. It's like, oh, well, you know, you always want to be fetching blue mana when you can. And then, you know, you get to some point where it's like, oh, because I've only been fetching blue mana, I now have this, like, really awkward scenario where I have to fetch, like, some second... Like, I have to fetch my second blue-green source. And, like, I don't want that for this reason or that reason. Or I need to cast some heavily pipped card and... You know, I was fetching only blue mana, and now I have this necropotence, and, like, that's super awkward, yeah, like, or whatever. This granite ball sure is, like, uncastable now. Yeah. Uh, I wanna, I wanna 
play Ranger Captain and find Esper Sentinel. Um, <laughs> the classic. So, yeah, just sort of uh, playing a game where you decide to be aware of that or, uh, you know, where you really pay attention to, like, particularly this is more for decks that have, like, disruptive permanence, but, uh, like, making sure you're really considering the order in which you play them um yeah because you know the heuristic is like oh be mana efficient and you know you know you want to like oh you really want to get the drandith down before people get their commanders you want to be mana efficient and it's like yeah sure obviously those things are true but you know i've definitely played games where for example like people held rule of laws because they wanted to play, like, two stacks pieces a turn for one or two turns and then play the rule of law. Yeah. And it's like, oh, well, we died because I wanted to get down, you know, the blind obedience and the something else. And then, oh, look, we died because uh, there wasn't Somebody a rule of law in play. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's just, like, another example of you can play games where you really focus on one aspect of your gameplay. Yep, I think it's definitely just something in general. Again, this is for improvement in a lot of things, but um, there's uh, a really good way, a really efficient way of improving in general is that this is just reiterating, reiterating the exact same thing that Morgan just said, just more generally, is spending games focusing on a singular aspect of your gameplay and focusing on just trying to improve that or just trying to play it as optimally as possible. Um, again, like a specific part of your mechanics, a specific game plan. I'm like, I'm just going to try to figure out, like I'm going to dedicate this entire game just to figuring out what my optimal tutor targets are for like every tutor that I cast. And that that's like all I'm focusing on. I don't really care about like winning. I don't really care about like sequencing the rest of my stuff, just trying to get like good habits. Um, and then a corollary to that is also um, constantly being on the lookout for what your bad habits are. Um, and if you're making the same mistakes constantly, um, focusing on weeding those out of your decision trees and weeding those out of your gameplay um, for as many games as it takes or just, like, a few games at a time every session just to try to get rid of them. Um, if you notice that, like, you're making bad attacks continuously, okay, I'm gonna... Every every turn now, I'm just gonna focus on what my good attacks are. Oh, I'm, like, I'm missing Rhystic Study triggers for some reason. Okay, this game, I'm, like, when I have a Rhystic Study or a Mystic Remora or an Esper Sentinel Town or, like, anything that produces triggers for my opponents doing things, I'm just going to focus all game on making sure I keep track of those 100% of the time. Yeah, and get um, yourself a shot caller, so when... <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, like, that, that is how you improve, right? Is that, like, it, it's hard to improve at, like, everything at once, so it's really productive to identify specific things to focus on improving on for, like, limited periods of time until you're better at them, and then, like, going and switching off to something else. I actually, I, I don't necessarily agree with the idea that it's hard to improve uh, at everything all at once. Like, I, I think, you know... I, I, I think it's harder and slower a lot of the time. I mean, obviously you can, but, like, I, I think you get to, there's, you, like, almost always get to a point where it's, like, more productive to, like, focus your improvement in well, specific areas well, certainly all done. Well, certainly, there are diminishing returns, so... Yeah, like, sure. if you're yeah, yeah. improving equally at the things you're already really good at and the things you're not good at, you know, putting... Or, like, if the effort is being spent equally, then you're going to improve very little on the things you're already good at. And you can improve a lot more by putting more effort into the, you know, your your weak points. But I guess, like, 
I think one of the reasons I disagree is just because, you know, we've we've said this a lot, just like playing a lot of games is a is a great way to improve. Well, yeah. 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 Just like <laughs> like all of this stuff is is nice. You know, if you can get But but again, but again, sorry, it's not just the playing of games that makes you good. I mean, obviously, yeah, if you play a bunch of games, you're just gonna get good in general. That's just like if you put hours in, you're gonna get better <laughs> in general. Um, but specifically if you're playing games and thinking about the games that you're playing. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah you, you should be, you should be thinking about, you should be thinking about all the games that you're playing. If you're not, if you're not doing any like focused or like any improvement strategy specifically, just think about the games that you're playing. <laughs> this is the takeaway here. Yeah. Like, I guess what I'm saying is that like, if you spend effort improve at, at trying to improve, even yes. if that effort isn't, you know, laser targeted or spent the most efficiently or in the optimal environment, you just will improve so yeah you know all of these things are are nice if they're options that are available to you but if they're not uh just jam some damn games <laughs> do the thing <laughs> um yeah i think uh do i have anything else on mindset um yeah not really don't get down on yourself um if you lose games because you punted um I mean, my mantra for a long, long, long time um, when playing CDH was uh, if I punted a game away or made like a very obvious mistake, it was, uh, well, I'm never making that mistake again because I made it once and that, that, that one's now lodged in my brain and we're going to remember that one every time I'm about to make the same mistake. Obviously, it's not necessarily like 100% true, but that's, that's sort of like the internal mantra for me at least for a long time is just like yeah i'm just like we're okay great we're never making that mistake again because i'm not gonna let myself make that mistake again because i've made it once and now it's like locked in and i'm fully aware of it which i feel like funnily enough is it's not exactly being down on yourself but kind of requires an unhealthy attitude towards mistakes in a lot of ways but yeah, that's fair <laughs> uh, but like you know it's Again, it's it's whatever works for you. Um, if that doesn't work, um, shot caller is this. then <laughs> if that doesn't work, then you know reward yourself for doing well. If you play a game that you think particularly was particularly good, you're like, yeah, damn right, good shit, self. We played that. We played the shit out of that game. Let's go. Yeah, um, self encouragement, all that good shit. For yeah. sure. Um, and and again, like you know, I, we spent a lot of time talking about mistakes. Uh it is important to accurately identify them because like a lot of things that people call mistakes aren't, um, you know, there's a lot of variance in this format. Uh, sometimes you play around the, the likely threat, not the unlikely threat. And they have yep. like, if you're looking at, uh, you know, uh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to come up with like a good example. Um, but, you know, let's say you have the option to play, like, Null Rod or Dranith Magistrate against a given deck that you think is angling for a win. Um, you know, it's probably pretty easy to figure out, okay, um, you know, here's here are the win cons that they have access to that Null Rod is better against, here are the ones they have access to that Dranith is better against, uh, and this one's the better play because it just hits more of their stuff or stuff that's easier for them to set up or harder to disrupt in other ways or whatever it is. And then it's like, oh, well, they just, you know, they had the, like, I don't know, you're playing against Malcolm Tana and they have Ma or Malcolm in play. So you're going like, well, the Dranath doesn't stop, you know, them from doing anything. So I'll play, uh, I'll play this Curse Totem to shut off the Glinthorn Buccaneer. And 
they go like, oh, cool, I just have the gamble breach set up. And it's like, well, you know, unlucky, but obviously you're supposed to play around, if they already have Malcolm in play, you're probably supposed to play the Curse Totem, not the, uh, not the Dranith Magistrate, because that deck is, like, entirely built around setting up Malcolm Glintorn and incidentally yeah. has breach or whatever its backup win con has is. yeah whatever stuff in it yeah um yeah j- really just identifying like what would probably be called like judgment calls versus misplays um or like if you're taking an educated risk um if you if you know what the ri- you, you should like or like yeah you should know what the risk is when you make a decision and if you didn't know what the risk is and then you lost to the risk then like that that's a mistake right yeah for sure um cool uh i think i think that's most of what we had slash all of what we had um yeah, i think it was good it was it was good to get all that down on a on a wax tube to be played over the interwebs and in people's ears <laughs> i don't don't ask me why i chose to go with that reference it was a spur of the moment i'm moving past it also, um, anyway weren't they, weren't they <laughs> cylinders Tube cylinders? Were they cylinders? I what don't think tubes? they were hollow. No? Oh, uh, did they have like a through? Oh, uh, were they like wax cylinders like on a spindle or something? I, th- uh, I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> what is anyway. this the land before time? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I hope that was uh, I hope that was like pretty useful just in terms of like, you know, I, I that sort of turned into like a general improvement podcast at the end of it. But I, I think that's a very like that's a large part of practice games anyway of like practice the the act of playing practice games is also the act of improving um and they sort of go hand in hand um so improvement is the mindset practice games is the action that you take um to actually execute that mindset so yeah hope that was useful let us know if you have like any questions about this kind of stuff because i mean this is all like super this this sort of gets more abstract there's a lot more than just like cdh concepts and like cards and stuff like that so Feel free to fire off questions in the Discord and such, or just like DMs, I guess. Um, either way, there's uh, one question not allowed to ask, happy. Though, which is when are we adding an LFG channel? Because it's not happening. <laughs> yeah, that's a go, please <laughs> go use the bajillion other LFG channels everywhere else, or just like DM people for games. Or, or honestly, you could just ask it our general channel. Just don't make a habit of it. <laughs> um, cool. Uh. So aside from that, uh, again, we are not doing gut check because it's a two-person podcast. Um, but if you would like to submit uh, gut checks, our patrons can submit gut checks. Question mark. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so if you're a patron, you can join the Discord and submit uh, gut check questions. And if you submit a gut check question, we actually might end up doing one for a two-person podcast because it means that one of us don't have to come up with it. So it's like less of a bad idea. Anyway. Uh, moving past that, uh, we will be doing a listener question this episode, um, and this one is, I guess Morgan, you can read this, because I've done a lot of talking this podcast. <laughs> oh, I hate you. Uh, sure. So we have from <laughs> Msmax, how can I construct a cube such that after one draft, player can have a good idea of the archetypes and how they should approach drafting slash building slash playing? And, uh, you know, obviously this isn't CEDH related, but I feel like over the last few months we've spent enough time talking about Cube that, uh, you know, that this is fair. Form factors. Yep. Um, um, oh, for for people 
unawares I, I probably should have put this at the what are you doing at the beginning of the show i have been <laughs> i have been putting together a cube recently of like a sort of like a legacy plus like unpowered cube um to do testing so this is sort of like you know it, it's relevant to my current <laughs> experience and i mean forcing morgan to play cube drafts and do like test drafts with me and stuff yeah the reason like i haven't been people, up to so. anything uh, you know, particularly exciting is because Reed's had me locked in his basement <laughs> doing, <laughs> doing cube, cube sims. <laughs> um, yeah, I, so I, I preface this with like neither of us are experts on cube, especially not building cubes. Um, but I, we, I feel like we both played enough cube at this point that you know, and like played enough like limited environments and such that like we probably need to give a decent answer to this one. Um, I would say that like. Constructing a cube such that after a draft, a player can have a good idea of archetypes is um, really just an exercise in uh, building a good draft environment in general. I'd say, um, or at least like, at least like a, a, a easy to grasp draft environment in general is um, part of that is building a cube with very defined archetypes. Um, so like not having just, I mean. Having a cube full of good cards without any synergy, I guess, is also a way of doing this, where people can just sort of draft whatever good cards they want, but that, I feel like that's sort of not the spirit of the question. I think the spirit of the question is that, like, yeah, you, you want to build, you want to have, like, sort of defined archetypes for all of your color pairings and all of your single colors, I'd say, um, and have cards, like, have a majority of the cards in your cube fit, fit cleanly into at least one of those archetypes apiece, if not multiple. Um, and then... As well as that having, uh, I think a big one is having signpost uh, gold cards. Signpost, signpost gold cards are, like, they're, they exist in, like, basically every set, like, regular set in Magic anyway. Like, any set that's intended to be drafted. And for good reason, because they really are a really good way of getting people to understand exactly what all of the decks in the format are. Because when you see a gold card in two colors that, like, screams a specific archetype, you're gonna be like, oh, cool, like, the blue-black thing says zombie, like, four times on this one card, I guess the, like, the, un like, the, or whatever, like, the gold uncommon says zombie, like, four times, I guess the blue-black deck is a zombie deck, great. I feel like that's a particularly bad example, because perennial cube powerhouse and non-archetype defining card the scarab god says zombie on it like four times okay yeah you're right fine <laughs> but fine okay yeah i would say i would say like having the signpost cards and having signpost cards in uh in monocolor is important yep. also don't put in fake signpost cards i see this in oh, like yeah. a lot of people's yeah, yeah. cubes you'll see i don't know you'll see a card like uh I don't know, like a goblin bombardment. I think this honestly, this was true of the vintage cube until For recently. A long time. Yeah. Well, like goblin bombardment used to be in, and then they took it out, and they recently put it back in. But they put it back in with like a bunch of cards that actually make it work. But it was in there for a while yeah. without those cards. Like they're just like there was like a young pyromancer, sure, uh, and you know there's like the occasional token generation, but. They did not have, uh, like, the sort of consistent... You, you couldn't build a deck out of, like, I'm going to make a bunch of tiny tokens and sack them for value, and there was no Mayhem Devil, and there was no, you know, this and that. And, like, now those cards are in there, but for a while they weren't, and that made it... Like, you would see a card like Goblin Bombardment and go, like, oh, th 
there's clearly an there's idea like a here. red sack deck yeah, yeah. There, there's there's a red sacrifice it's probably going to be rakdos maybe jund or whatever um but like there's clearly an idea here and then if there isn't then people are just going to be confused yeah uh yeah i i would say like build like yeah definitely try not to have like if if your goal is to construct a cube such that like players can like easily pick up what the archetypes are just like avoiding trap archetypes in general trap cards in general um this is a really big f feature of like yeah like vintage or like moto style cubes of like they're they're built in very specific ways and like some of those ways are that like there are archetypes that don't work a large percentage of the time except for like the one in like whatever one in 20 times that they do work and then when they do the work they're like super good and like produce like great stories and stuff like that um really great for mtgo when you're trying to drive engagement and like get people to have like one-of-a-kind experiences with the cube not great when you're trying to get people to actually like be able to comprehend it relatively quickly and like have fun after like a single draft uh drafting the next time wait are, um, are you saying that the the mana flare heartbeat of spring deck isn't <laughs> <laughs> dude i mean there are so many times when i've been like i you know there's like a fat i have like a fast bond and a time spiral i'm like probably this is probably the mana flare deck right and then like you pick both of them and then just neither of them make the main deck ever it's <laughs> never like, the wow, flare deck. this is this is terrible <laughs> um, i it's, like, wild to me how many of my opponents... I think there was, like, one time where I was like, I think I can actually just play Mana Flare and pass here. And I was right. And then, like, yeah. six times... Every other time. ...where <laughs> I was like, I'm not casting here, or my opponent, like, cast it and passed. And I was like, you're gonna die. You're... I'm, I'm gonna make sure you regret that one. Well, it's, it, it's, it's not even you're gonna die. There's just so many times I've been playing a green deck and my opponent goes, like, Mana Flare pass. And I'm like, great. Pest Infestation for seven, kill it, and the rest of your shit pass? Like, yeah. <laughs> congratulations. You gave me a massive Pest Infestation and lost your board for playing the Mana Flare. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> oh, okay, I'll take a turn with... You know, I'll take, I have, like, five lands, so I'll spend seven mana on, you know, playing good stuff, and three mana on destroying your mana flare. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> mana thank flare. you. <laughs> cool, much appreciated. Um, but yeah, I, just signpost cards, super important. Cohesive archetypes, super important. Um, should really, like, most cubes should have a degree of synergy going on, it shouldn't just be good stuff cubes. Um, so you should have intentionality for, like, how you want specific decks to be built, and obviously... There's variance, a huge part, a huge like fun part of cube is building decks in ways that the cube originator never intended them to be built. But that's not why you're building this cube, right? You would be building this cube to make it easy for new players to pick up, which is like you you know it should have some level of being on rails and uh, like you, you should be able to build the on rails decks. Uh, so all the two color decks and single color decks like pretty easily. Yeah, I think that's cool. And, I, like, I mean, obviously, looking at other cubes and how they're constructed, and also, I mean, yeah, that looking too. at limited environments, right? Like, yep. the the concept of signpost uncommons is something that comes from, like, not from cubes, but from... And, I mean, obviously, rarity in cubes is less of a, less of a thing. Yeah, it's but, just not a thing. But... but, like, cards that often are two colors and, and, like, clearly define an archetype that you're intending is something that you can see across, like, all of Magic's history, and 
I'm sure if you spent enough time analyzing limited environments, you'd come up with a bunch more lessons there. Yeah, I think uh, listen to a Resleepables podcast. Um, I forget which one it was, but uh, oh, I think it was like the I think it was the first one of the new iteration where they um did a podcast on uh Alpha Beta Unlimited um about yeah, just like Patrick Sullivan like just being like yeah like. I'll I'll like go back and like look through the alpha card file like every every couple of months and just like bask in like how well put together it is and like I think I don't think it's unreasonable that like if you're interested in building cubes that you should like go look at sets and like admire the set design and admire how they put together the limited format for that set especially like it's not hard to like go Google like what are the best limited environments of all time in Magic's history and just like go and appreciate those sets for what they are. And like how they made that happen, right? Well, and like, yeah, if you can find like test drafts with people, like go go play some of those formats and see what you like about them and see why they work and try to analyze why they work. Time Spiral was almost one of the greatest limited environments of all time. <laughs> it was so uh, close. Good old, good old Innistrad, as long as you just take out the invisible stalkers. <laughs> but I think, honestly, I think having done the throwback drafts when they were on Moto, uh, I, I I don't think a common has ever, like, ruined a draft format as thoroughly as yeah. Sprout Swarm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> and that's even, if you look at cube discourse, people are just like, why, why do you have Sprout Swarm in your cube? It's either, like, not going to be good enough and then it's just unplayable, or it's just, like, the most, like, the slowest, most inevitable death that you cannot prevent, in, like, in, in the cube. It's just going to be terrible every time. <laughs> sure. Cool. Um yeah, good stuff. Uh so that about wraps it up for this episode. Um if y'all would like to reach out to us with any questions, comments, or concerns, you can contact us contact us on Twitter at Into the North Pod, via our email at into the North Podcast at gmail.com, or on our Discord server, the invite link for which can be found in the description for this episode. And extra special thanks to all of our patrons who help cover the expenses for our show and allow us to record quality of our podcast on here. If you too would like to become a patron, go to patreon.com slash into the north podcast. Thank you as always to the band Fox Cadre for our lovely podcast music and to Nate Slover for our equally lovely podcast logo. Next episode will be on the two.